welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. Open up a Bible with me to the book of John. Yes, we're in the second half. Everyone's saying it as a joke at this point. Uh, so in the first term, we said, let's come and see in the book of John. And now we add more life. Life is one of the biggest themes of the book of John. And it's Zoe life, abundant life, God quality life. How do we find it? How do we discover it? How do we live in it? Everyone's looking for it. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you a very simple, but I genuinely think an incredibly difficult question. If you were to go back to your younger self, or maybe someone here that's a bit younger than you are, and they come and ask you a genuine, a heartfelt question, and the question is the following, how would you answer them? How do I make the most of my life? How do I make the most of my life? I'm genuinely asking you this morning, don't just skim over that, but think about it for a moment. If you could give me genuine, heartfelt advice, how can I make, whether I'm 5, 15, 55, or 75 years old, how can I make the most of my life? And I'm going to take a couple of extra minutes this morning just to set it up before we get to the text, because I think it's so crucial that we get the depth of what we're saying this morning. This book is challenging, and Afrikaans will say, die wit warm waks uit my eight, this book of John. <laughs> it's challenging me, yes. That was not tongues, it was Afrikaans. Um, yes, Kara Zabanda. Um, it's challenging me on such a deep level, because it's, it's taking us to a place where life is not a superficial thing, but it's a meaningful thing. So what did that look like? Just recently, I heard for the hundredth time, a secular author just saying, as a, as a matter of fact at the moment, that we are, as modern people, especially the younger generations, we're in a crisis of meaning. We're in a crisis of meaning. We have almost everything we need to, to have life to the full, and yet life is so devoid of meaning, of purpose, of identity. People are crying out with this question, how do I make my life meaningful? And I have to say the answers that we find are less than stellar. So just recently, I went back, I had to reread it just to make sure that I got it the first time. One of the most shared articles of 2021 from a website called Lifehack, they had this very compelling title, 22 tips to make the most of life. And I'm all ears. I'm like, yes. Now listen to how powerfully this article starts. He says, the following scenario is something that so many people live in every day, especially I'm guessing in the West. You have more than what you could imagine, however you're not feeling all that happier. Instinctively, we think the problem could be fixed if there was just more of that one thing in our lives. More of what? Whatever. More money. More things. Better relationships. More food. Amen. Simply more. You can't pinpoint exactly what it is, but you know that you just want more of something in your life at this point. Boiling it down, it leads to this one thing, that people struggle to figure out how to get the most out of life. And getting the most out of life means being able to be happy and satisfied. It's having enough in your life of what makes you happy. So man, 
This is where he starts. I'm like, man, this is going to be great. This person gets it. Like, it's not just more money and, you know, a better body. or a, Everyone is getting that, and yet no one is, is getting what they want. So there must be something deeper, something profound, something helpful. And once again, I'm not trying to be facetious when I bring these articles every, every now and then, but listen to the profound advice that we are getting. This is one of the most shared articles of 2021. Let me give you just a couple of these 22. The rules are meant to be broken. Okay, slow down and bask in the pleasure of living. Regret nothing and do all the things. And listen to this profound one. Stay true to your authentic self. That's it. This is seen as one of the most like, and, and 22 more amazing thoughts like that, friends. We be asking for meaning. Just be your true authentic self. What is this? We're in a crisis of meaning, and this is the best we can do. Do all the things. What does that even mean? What, is, what does that mean? Yes, all the food. Some of you guys are still stuck on that food one when I said it. So maybe the answer is found somewhere else. Some people would say, some of our modern people would say, well, the answer is in self-expression. If you can find it on the inside, deep in there, that is where meaning and purpose would come from. You see this everywhere. I'll give you a trivial example. The other day we were watching, on Friday evenings, we do pizza and homemade, or homemade pizza, not homemade movies, that's weird. Homemade pizza and movie nights. Um, guys, all things are pure to the pure. That's all I'm saying. So, so we've watched every single animation kids movie under the sun. Genuinely, after two and a half years of doing this, we've watched all of it. And I'm thinking of the difference between, take Mulan, not the new one, because that was rubbish, the old one. Um, the old Mulan, what was, the, what was the thought behind the thing that they were trying to teach the kids? It was basically this, that to live for the honor of your family is something great. That's maybe where you can find meaning in your life, to live for the honor of your family. I take that compared to a movie we watched recently with our kids, Turning Red. You know what the, what the, the, the heart behind this movie was? Stuff the honor of your family. Live for your own self-expression. My panda, my choice. That's where the movie ends, basically. She says, my self-expression trumps family and tradition. We're in a crisis of meaning. Where do I find purposeful living? Maybe it's found in freedom. If I am free of all these things that are trying to oppress me and I can live the life that I want to, maybe that's where I'll find it. Love this recent Twitter post by a guy. He's an atheist and he runs this account called The Modern Man. And he says this, he says, religion is simply slavery. I choose not to be a slave. And what is he saying? We say that whilst we are addicted to everything, pornography and Netflix and food and basically your girlfriend. We are a slave to everything while we're saying, no, I'm a free, I'm a free thinking person. Religion, that's slavery, but I'm free, though we are addicted to everything. There's a crisis of meaning. Let me give you one last one last uh, example. Recently heard a pastor giving a talk to a bunch of, a couple of thousand pastors in North America. And he was speaking about what he called the Jordan Peterson phenomena. Now, I don't agree with everything that Jordan Peterson says, so I'll just throw it out there. But he says, here's what's interesting. In a, in a season where, especially in the West, in the North American West and in Europe, he says where young professional men like never before, are stepping away from religion because of frustrations they have, and they're identifying as nuns. I have no religious affiliation. He says, in record numbers like that, into that steps this random guy called Jordan Peterson. 
He's a clinical psychologist from Canada, and he starts mainly speaking from the Old Testament from a psychological perspective, and he starts these lectures, and he starts speaking about where we find meaning in life as young men. And he writes a book a couple of years ago called 12 Rules for Life. We want to be free. And this book called 12 Rules for Life has been on the top five of Amazon's best-selling list for 233 weeks this morning to the day. You can go and check. Friends, there's 52 weeks in a year, 233 weeks. His biblical lectures have been watched more than 420 million times. And in 2018, he went on this tour of 160 cities where they would sell out three to 5,000 seats to auditoriums at a lot of money per ticket. And he would lecture for two and a half hours without any break. And you know who the greatest majority of the population was coming to listen to this man? Young, professional men. We're in a crisis of meaning, and we're asking the question as modern people, how can I live a life that's meaningful? How can I live life to the full? How can I make the most of my life? And I am going to give you the most counterintuitive answer this morning. You're going to roll your eyes, but by the end, I hope you'll roll them backwards spiritually. I want to make the case that into all of these attempts at answering this question, the most ancient version of the question is still the most potent answer. And that is that you will find the deepest sense of identity, purpose, and meaning when you absolutely and completely abandon yourself and follow Jesus. That is not what you wanted to hear. <laughs> but I promise you that is the answer. So let me take you to the scripture today. We're moving on last week, powerful, John 11. Man, that was awesome. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And now we said at the end of that chapter that it's that moment that caused the Jewish elite to want to kill Jesus. And so he retreats to the northern part of Jerusalem. But then when Passover is about to arrive, it's this critical moment. We're going to go into it for the rest of the couple of weeks that follow now. He goes back to Bethany and he actually lodges with those three friends of his from last week, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, now newly resurrected Lazarus. I'm sure those conversations must have been amazing. And the following happens. Obviously, there's this dread amongst these friends because they sense the fact that Jesus is about to, be, he's about to be arrested. Things are about to get real. And so there's this dread that hangs over their fellowship the whole time. And so in this weighty moment, it's almost as if Mary suddenly realizes she realizes the weightiness of the moment. And what does she do after one of their meals? She anoints the feet of Jesus with this incredibly, incredibly expensive perfume. Very strange. And I believe that in this posture of Mary, we see, and I want to say not the, not the end of the conversation. There's a whole lot more we need to say about how do I live a life of meaning? How do I make the most of it? I think the beginning of our conversation starts here. So let's read it together. John 12 verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, and he was the one that Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him, and Martha was serving them. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with them. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointing Jesus' feet. And she wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and he would steal part of it 
that was put in it. And Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it, this moment, for the day of my burial. For you always will have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And I want to skip just to verse 23 that he explains something of what's happened here. Jesus replied to them and he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man, for Jesus to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So just stay there for now. Jesus here makes some of the most controversial and radical statements in the New Testament on what it means to follow him. What is a Christian? One example, one definition could be someone who follows Jesus. And what Jesus says here, if not from the lips of Jesus, I think we would be perfectly okay to say that is too much. It's too extreme. It's too radical. But because it's from the lips of Jesus, man, we have to wrestle with what he says here. And here's the metaphor that I want to use for the rest of the sermon that I want you to get. If you come from the coast, if you go to the beach often, you will know what a rip current is. So a rip current is when suddenly there's this localized body of water that almost like a river just cuts across away from the coast right through all of the, the breaking of the waves and it sucks people into it. Some of the speeds measured of these are, are quicker than the, than the pace of, of an Olympic swimmer. Now, what you would think you do if you are caught in a rip current like that, most people think, is what? To swim as hard as you can. Swim, 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 get back to the coast. And the unfortunate reality for so many people over history is that is the very thing that kills you. Because no matter how good you swim, you are going to tie yourself out and die, unfortunately. So here is the counterintuitive Wisdom that's given to us by lifeguards. If you are caught in a rip current, what should you do? You should lie on your back and you should let it take you out. As far as it can. And when it has subsided, you swim diagonally now, slowly back to the coast. Here is the principle. The very thing you thought would bring you life is the thing that takes your life. And the advice given to us here is the very thing you think will lead to your death is the very thing that brings you life life. Jesus says a radical and a very difficult thing here. He says, this is what it means to follow me. When you try to save yourself, you kill yourself. When you try to save your life, you lose your life. When you try and be the center of your life, you lose all of it. He says the following. He says, you have to hate your life to find it. He says, you have to lose your life to discover it. Yes. That's rough. Who says that kind of stuff in a cancel culture like we have today? If Jesus lived today, man, his Twitter account would not have lasted very long. He says you have to hate your life, lose your life to discover it. Following Jesus is so counterintuitive. Because following him to our intuitions will feel like it is the death of my freedom and my joy and my options and my potential. If I start following him, it's the death of all those things. But what I discover when I lie back into him fully is it's not the death of those things, it's the birth 
of my options and joy and purpose and identity. So let me show you, there are actually a whole bunch more, but I'll give you just three for the sake of time today. Three principles from this moment with Mary about how we start, not end, just start the conversation about a life full of meaning and purpose. How do I make the most of my life? And the first thing is this, life to the full. If you want to make the most of life, it begins when I die to myself. <laughs> it begins when I die to myself. Why do I say that? So Mary does a couple of really disgraceful things in this passage. The first thing is she bows down and she washes and anoints the feet of Jesus. Even saying feet, some of you guys are already cringing. You're thinking, please don't do like a foot washing something at the end of the service. And it's a million times worse because in this ancient Eastern culture, in that hot, humid, dusty culture where everyone's in their sandals the whole time, friends, feet were disgusting. To such an effect that for most of the provinces around where Jesus lived, it was against the law to even have your slave do this. It was seen as too demeaning for someone to wash your feet like this. And Mary bows down and she washes the feet of Jesus. That is as low as you can get. And the second thing she does, in our culture, we don't understand it that way, but in the ancient Eastern culture, like it is still for some Muslim cultures around the world, for a woman to, to let go of her hair like that and just, and just let it hang loose, that was very, very scandalous. For us, it's no biggie, but in the ancient Eastern culture, that was like a no-no socially. And what does she do? She, she lets her hair down, and instead of using a towel, she washes the feet of Jesus with her hair. <laughs> Friends, this is as low and as shameful as you can get. What do we see in what Mary is doing. She's looking at Jesus, and in some profound way, she's saying, I see who you are, and I realize that all the honor is owed to you, and I don't care what anyone thinks of me. I don't care what anyone thinks of what I'm doing at the moment. I realize the value of who you are, and I realize that I owe you my everything. Doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of me. You are owed Everything. In other words, what was she doing? She was abandoning her pride. Pride. It's that word that we love. In our modern culture, yes, you can use the word pride as positive things. I take pride in my kids. But pride can also be very negative. Let's look at the negative aspect of that word just for a second here today. Pride, the Bible says, is this, this feeling. It's this unction. It's this posture that's deep in the heart of every human being. And this unction looks at life. It looks at the world. It especially looks at God and it says, I am owed a much better life than I have at the moment. I'm owed so much more than what you've given me. Life, world, God, the universe. You have given me a raw deal. I'm owed so much more. There's a pride in every single person. And that pride can mix with two things. Either it mixes with success in life or it, it mixes with disappointment in life. And when pride mixes with success, maybe you, you achieve some financial success, some vocational success, maybe relational success. When that pride of I'm owed more, when that mixes with success, what happens? I become a shallow and a manipulative person. I need to have that success. You've been in those circles for the, for the older people. For those that you work with, you've seen when someone becomes so convinced that life owes me. Success is owed to me. The other day, I just heard someone speaking about some political just analysis saying that the, 
it's not unique to South African politicians, but some South African politicians, and he tracked how over the years they will flip-flop on issues. I absolutely believe this. And 10 years later, they'll say exactly the opposite. Why? Because they don't actually care about any of those issues. They just want to have success. And what, not all of them, but some of them are so, so owed success that I will sacrifice my own values. I will become a shallow person because life owes me. But pride, that, that unction that life owes me can also mix with disappointment. When, when you are deeply disappointed, when life just kicks you in the shin. And this is again counterintuitive, but you know what? Nothing makes you more self-righteous than when pride mixes with disappointment. Why? Because I say, man, life is unfair. God is unfair. I'm as good as the next person. I'm probably better than that person. But look at what's happening. They are getting everything they've ever wanted, and I'm not getting any of it. Nothing makes me more self-righteous than when life owes me mixes with deep disappointment. So what happens? Pride and success, it makes me shallow. It makes me superficial. Pride and disappointment, it makes me angry and bitter and cynical. Life sucks. People suck. Marriage, it sucks. Our country, my future. Look at Mary. <laughs> Look at how countercultural what she's doing here. She wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Friends, what I'm seeing in this passage is unless we drop the idea that God owes me, life owes me, I will never come to the beginning of genuinely life to the full. As long as pride is the driving force of my life, as long as self-importance is the, the core of who I am, I will never discover life in Christ. And the answer that many of us then try and take up is what? Religiosity. Okay, so I will go to church. I will pray. I will give to the poor. I will be a good person. But here's the challenge with that, friends, is once again, deep inside me, that impulse that says I'm owed a better life than what I have, it will grab hold of religion and it will say, now this is the way that I will get that. And, and if your life is going well, you're praying, you're going to church, you're doing your thing, you're going to say, well, God, you, you kind of owe me because, you know, I'm doing really well. And if life is not going well, you're going to say, God, I'm angry at you because look at what I'm doing. And you are so, you're meant to owe me a better life. Look at my friends. They don't, they don't go to church. They, they don't do that kind of stuff. I don't swear in front of other people. Um, not like them. When I sleep around, no one knows about it. So, you know, why are they getting everything they want? All it's going to do is it's going to take religion and it's once again just going to mix it with pride. Now, I know that none of you guys would ever be like this, but this is how I was. I had this deep, and I'm saying was, this is what God is ridding from me in sanctification day by day in a new identity. I, I was this person who said, life owes me. I've said to you before that my parents, they were very successful in business, and my biggest desire was to join them, make enough money, and this was my exact thought, so that I can impress the people that I went to school with when we have our, our reunion. That was my biggest thing. Five years, 10 years, 50, at 20 years, I want them to be so impressed with what I have. Now, I know none of you would ever think like that because you're amazing people, but that's how I thought. I, in fact, had a Bible that I would read for this. You know what that Bible was called? Men's Health Magazine. That was my Bible. Because the cover of Men's Health is basically life owes me. 
I need a six-pack and a nice woman. I need a big salary and a, and a beach house. That is what I'm owed. And I had stacks of men's health that just fed me this message of this is who I'm going to be. And when Jesus came into my life, there was this, there was this weekend where he just so wrecked me on the inside about who my identity is as a son in his house that I felt led to take all those men's healths of mine and I put them in these big black bags and I put them outside. I'll never forget the, the garbage guys coming past. I'm sure they thought I'd cut up a body or something because those things were so heavy. It was these stacks of just books outside. But that day was so freeing to me when I realized life does not owe me. In fact, the very opposite. What do I see in Mary's posture? She comes to the place where she says to Jesus, I realize that I owe you everything. The place where life, genuinely meaningful life begins is the day that I realize I owe God everything. Everything. I owe Him everything. Any Lord of the Rings fans here this morning? Yes. Thank you, Antoinette. What is Schmeagel's, what is his catchphrase when he thinks about the ring? My precious. Ben, my son, when he was younger, I told him about this and he, he couldn't pronounce it well yet, so he would just call it my precious. So in a sense, what this text is challenging you with this morning is it's asking you, what is your precious? What is your precious? What is the most precious thing in the world? And Mary, in a moment of faith, she realizes what's sitting in front of me is the most precious thing in the world. I'm not owed. I owe him everything. Secondly, life to the full begins when I live from a new identity. Here's a question. Why is Mary doing this? Why? It's important to look at the what, but the why is so important. Why? Because in the motivation of what we do, the motivation behind Christianity and religion is the difference between what makes someone a Christian and what makes someone a good and moral person. There's nothing wrong with trying to be a good and moral person, but there's a massive difference between that and wanting to be a Jesus follower. So let me ask you the question, what does it mean to just follow Jesus externally? What did that look like? If, if someone told you, how do I just follow Jesus? We would say, well, you try and do the things that he said we should do. And you try and, you know, commit your life to him and you try and imitate him and you, you try and walk in his ways, right? That's all the stuff that we do, isn't it? But here's the question. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? What is the motivation of wanting to follow Jesus? And I think there are a whole bunch, but let me give you three quick motivations that I think many of us here this morning sit with. One motivation for you is culture. This is how I grew up. I grew up in the church, and so when I do Christian things with Christian people in Christian spaces, I just feel kind of right. And when I don't do those things, even as, an, as a person in my 50s, I still just don't feel right. This is how I grew up, and this is what I know. So my motivation for Jesus is culture. Some of us, the motivation is blessing. I'm praying, I'm going to church, I'm serving, I'm giving. Why? Because I'm trying to cut a deal with God. God, I need to know that when I pray, you're going to be there. I need your protection. I need your blessing. I need your help. And so I am going to try my best to follow the Ten Commandments. I'm going to pray I'm going to give to the poor. My motivation is blessing. 
Or maybe a third one. Some of us, our motivation is guilt. I've done things that I'm so deeply ashamed of. And now through praying, giving, hoping, I'm, I'm trusting that I can convince myself and God that I'm someone of worth and character. But the secret that no one else knows around you is that not even you believe it. And you're trying your best to convince God. My motivation is guilt. And here's the sad thing, friends. None of these motivations can ever make you a Christian. In fact, all of these motivations, culture, guilt, blessing, will either leave you burnt out or deeply disappointed. When I follow Jesus and I do this Christian religious thing, if I do it for culture, if I do it for blessing, if I do it for guilt, I'll either be deeply burnt out or I'll be deeply disappointed. What does Mary do? Why does she do what she does? Verse 7, highlight this. Jesus answers and he says, leave her alone. Why? For she has kept this moment. She's kept this. What? For the day of my burial. Why was she doing what she was doing? Because something in Mary, not maybe fully realizing it, but something in faith in that moment made her realize that what I'm seeing in Jesus, the weightiness of this moment and the season, she realizes in faith something that none of the other disciples could fully see yet. And that is that this Jesus was not simply going to teach and be a good person and leave a good example, but he was going to die and he was going to die for her, for them, in the place of and she realizes, she looks at him and with tears in her eyes, she says, I'm not exactly sure, Lord, how this works or why you're doing this, but I realize that you are going to die for me and it absolutely overwhelms me. It overwhelms me to think what you are going to do for me. And because of that, there is nothing that I will not do for you. That becomes my identity. It becomes that absolute radical love of Jesus, that the lavish, abundant love of God in Jesus, it becomes the driving force for everything in my life. And what it's saying is if it's anything else than that, you'll be disappointed and you'll be deeply hurt. But if it's the love of God, not that you can earn, but the love of God for you, the costly grace of God for you, spoken over you, given to you. There's a moment where I say, God, here is where abundant life in its deepest purpose begins. When my identity is not what I drive, what I have, what I earn, what other people say about me. But the fact that God on a cross for me is the deepest statement of identity I can ever accept. Nothing can ever be more true than Jesus for Nothing. Friends, if I try and do it any other way, it's almost like metal. Have you ever seen if metal is bent? And you just think, well, let me just bend it the other way then. You use all these machines and all this, this energy and power, and you try and just bend it the other way. What's going to happen? You're just going to break it. <laughs> It'll just break. But if you heat metal up to insane temperatures, it effortlessly just takes on the shape that you need it to take up. Friends, if you try and bend yourself with gritted teeth through religion, through blessing, through culture, you will just break yourself even further. You'll be broken in disappointment. You'll be broken and burnt out by church. But if the searing heat of the love of God truly takes root in your heart, 
if it becomes the center of your life, you will see your character and your heart and your future just reshaped effortlessly from the inside out. It's not me for God. It's God for me. Last thing. Life to the full begins when we start counting differently. Again, this is not the full story. This is just where the, where the story begins. I think life to the full begins when we start counting differently. Friends, can we just say Judas gets a bad rap? Isn't it true? No one calls their child Judas anymore. And I'm sure there's a reason for it. But I think I can sympathize with Judas here for a moment. Because do you know how much this was worth? What she threw, that she just poured out. It says 300 denarii in verse 5. Do you know what that is? That's an entire year's income. Just think about that in your terms for a moment. You love someone so much that on their birthday, you buy them a present to the worth of your year's income or salary. Husbands, no pressure if your wife after today says, I now know what I want for, for my birthday next year. If you love me, you will give me your year's salary and a present. All right, so I've blessed you guys. So you can understand Judas being like, listen, can we just have some, some, some perspective here? Listen, Mary, I get you. Like, you're trying to go all in, but this is too much. <laughs> I'm all for honoring Jesus, but this is, this is excessive. Can we just have some perspective in life here? You know who does not have any perspective in life? People in long-distance relationships. Have you seen that? Some of you guys are in some of those at the moment. A person in a long-distance relationship, they look at the petrol price and they look at the fact that this person lives 600 kilometers away and most people do the math around them. Their friends, they're like, listen, I'm, I'm doing the math. Dude, let's be honest, she's not that attractive. Like, it's 600 kilometers. It's... But this person, what does this person do? This person counts differently. They count differently. They say, listen, I'm going to pay three quarters of my salary this year to drive for half a Saturday's time with this person. More than worth it. More than worth it. Because they count differently. You know what Matthew 13 says? Jesus says, you know what a Christian is? It's like someone who discovers this thing called the pearl of great price. And he's so taken in by it that he goes and sells joyfully everything he has because he realizes this thing is hundreds thousands of times worth everything he has. That is what a Christian is. Someone who says, what I have found in this Jesus is a, is a million times more than I can ever have without him. So there will be some transactions in my life as a Christian. There's a possibility that I will lose some things. But true abundant life begins when my life is not a transaction of who's going to die with the most toys. Which of my, of my matric friends will end having won the, the, the game of life? But when it becomes, I count so differently. Whatever I lose for him is the greatest gain I can ever have. Friends, do you know that maybe Christianity might cost you some relationships in your life? It might. But counting differently says the love that I lose is going to be far diminished by the love that I gain in Jesus. Friends, do you know what? Christianity is going to cost you money. Can I just say this again? J.D. Greer says that if I, as a Christian, just speaking to Christians for a second, if I know that my colleague and I are making the same amount of money and we live according to the same standard of living, I know that I'm not being generous. 
Because then we're just counting the same. Shay and I have often sat with difficult moments where we say, man, this money we could spend in so many ways. But I feel, God, I have to count differently. Because whatever I lose, I give away. I'm just a steward of what God has given me. And when I look at him, it's like the pearl of great price, not begrudgingly taking my app once a month and I pay to the church or I bless the girls from peas and a pot or I say, God, into this thing or this person in my community group that I just want to help or let me sponsor a couple of the ladies a book. I mean, just listening to Rory Dye from 3CI the other day. Beautiful story. He says a guy comes into church for the first time and he meets a young black lady at the front of the church and that lady tells the story that she does not have the money to go and study. And a week later, he phones and he says, I'm going to pay for all four years of studies for that lady, and I will do it with joy. He meets her once in church. Why would he do that? Because he counts differently. Friends, we say, Why, where will I find life to the full? It's found here. It's found in the pole of great price. So I just want to leave us just with verse 24. He says, truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat, it falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life here, this is the game. This is all there is. The one who loves his life in the here and now will lose it. But the one who hates basically what the standard of living is of what the culture says to us, this is who you are, what you can do, what you own, what others say about you. He says, when you begin to hate that, you will have eternal life. Friends, following Christ is like a seed dying. You put it in the ground and it's dead. It's been buried. No, it's gonna become what it's always been meant to be. If I'm gonna swim against the current, the very thing you think will give you life will kill you. But the day that I meet this Jesus and I just lay on my back and I say, for the love that I found in you, for the identity given to me in you, for the worth of what you speak over me, God, I want to lose everything that is not your life. There, friends, the conversation begins. Let's pray. Jesus, I just pray this morning that the tug that some people are experiencing of having to choose between Jesus and something else, God, that they would just be so consumed by the love of God for them. That just the abundant grace, the almost like this perfume just poured out, God, that the aroma of the grace of God would fill this room today. And they would hear the Father just saying, Come home to me. Know me. Let my truth and identity just overtake you, consume you, become you. Jesus, I pray that we would know you and you crucified and nothing more. That you would create in us, God, city changes that are driven by an identity that we find in Jesus, a worth that we find in Jesus. We pray that in your name. Everyone said...